Hi, my name is Steve Wishart, and I'm the IB World Schools Manager for Australasia at the International Baccalaureate. For this episode, we will hear from our IB leaders on what they are doing to address current issues and how they can manage opportunities for new developments. Please welcome our host for this series, Darlene Fisher, and our panelists, Dr. Courtney Lowe, Director at the American School of The Hague, Malcolm McKenzie, founding head at Keystone Academy, David Fitzgerald, Senior Vice President of GEMS Education, and Chris Wright, Director of Education for Woodward Schools UK. Hi, I'm Chris. I'm an IB lead educator currently located in the UK. I've been a head of school in three different schools within the IB world and now work for an organisation in the UK looking after 48 schools. So good to be part of this conversation this morning. Hi, and I'm Malcolm McKenzie. I'm the head of Keystone Academy in Beijing. This is a Chinese private school with international students and international programmes. And we're in our seventh year and I'm in Beijing right now. And hi, everyone. I'm James McDonald, and I'm coming to you from Brussels, where I'm the director of the International School of Brussels, and I've been an IB educator for well, 20 plus years now. I'm Courtney Lowe. I'm the director now at the American School of The Hague. I spent about 27 years before that in schools in Asia, IB schools among them. Hi, everyone. I'm David Fitzgerald. I'm the senior vice president with GEMS Education, currently based in Dubai, working with schools in the UAE, and also in the US and Asia. And I'm Darlene Fisher, the moderator of this series of IB Leadership Podcasts. And our topic today is all about marketing and how schools are dealing with the current challenges to marketing because of COVID and also what some of their impact has been and what they believe is going to be some of the long-term both impact and potential. So gentlemen, in your schools and regions, what has been some of the initial, I guess, perhaps financial implications in schools because of COVID? Do we have decreasing numbers, possible closures, or is it not having the impact that perhaps could be, was the worst case scenario and that schools are actually quite resilient as they have been in the past? Let me start off from the UK angle, maybe, Darlene, on this one. Interesting, we were expecting this September to have a decrease in numbers and virtually without exception, there's been a flight from the state system into the private system, partly because of the quality of remote learning that's been provided during the lockdown. So we're seeing a slight increase of numbers at the moment, around 5%. Having said that, there are schools in England, 30 at the moment, around 30 private schools that have had to close because virtually every private school in England during lockdown gave remissions on the fees and some of them reasonably sizable. So it has put both challenges and opportunities for the UK. Thank you, Courtney. We've seen among our neighbour schools, and we were about three and a half percent down actually in our enrollment, and among our neighbour schools, we're doing quite well compared to them. However, I think that we're not, haven't yet seen the impact actually of this, especially now as we go into a second wave here in Europe. I think we'll start to feel it even more in the future. Just got off the phone last week with one of our big multinational companies that supplies us with students, if you will. They don't expect to see an economic recovery until quarter one, quarter two of 2024. So I think we're in this for the long haul and we will start to see the results over time. Interestingly, we've seen an increase in our local population interested in the school, probably for some of the same reasons that Chris has mentioned. That is actually something that's coming up quite frequently. David? 
UAE parents traditionally move schools more than most around the world. And so we have seen a large movement from our, our more expensive schools to our mid-market price as the major companies like Emirates and, and Etihad further reduce expat packages. Well, I could just say that I agree with Courtney that we're in it for the long haul. There's no easy way of finding an ending yet. And so I think the patterns that we're seeing are going to be erratic and will go up and down. In China, it seems to me that there are two basic categories of international type schools. Those that have non-Chinese students, the more traditional international schools, and I think they are generally suffering enrollment dips. And then there are those like us that combine Chinese programs with international programs and have mainly Chinese students. And we haven't had any difficulty in meeting our enrollment targets for this year because most of our students are local. I think just to piggyback on some of those comments, we're seeing here in Brussels, our enrollment is actually slightly up, but we anticipate that this would be a long-term trend where we won't see as many of the expats being sponsored. But the only thing I would kind of add is that it really depends on who you're talking to, that some families have been hit very hard because of, say, private businesses that are affected, and others don't seem to be impacted at all financially. And in some cases, some businesses have done quite well. So it's just an aggregate. How much of a buffer do you have for managing any slight downturn in enrollment? Many of our schools that are pretty well established, we are likely to keep pretty healthy numbers. And as Chris said earlier, I think it's some of the more vulnerable schools that maybe are newly started out, maybe don't have that reputation where students may leave there and go to some of the other places. So the other thing is, of course, parents always need to provide their kids with education and it'll always be a huge priority. And I think I've been pleasantly surprised to see this in a couple of different settings that parents will make sure that their kids are in a good school. They will forsake other things to put education first. So it's kind of good from our professional standpoint to know it's, it's such a well-valued thing that we provide. Yeah, I think what, what you're all saying, what I'm hearing is mirroring what's coming out of ISC research, which we're saying that the expectation was that education wouldn't be as severely affected as other industries because in the past, in economic downturns, education has survived much better for exactly the reasons you've talked about, that people do consider education the long-term investment in the future. However, it is pushing parents to make decisions between schools, perhaps, and pushing them into the better known, more established comments made by the ISC research was talking about different schools are having to differentiate themselves more in order to appeal to specific groups of parents and perhaps it's really pushing schools to think more clearly about what type of education they provide which is something we explored at quite some depth in the other podcasts. If we start to delve into some of the specific ways that things are being impacted to what extent do you think that this is affecting teacher recruitment and teacher packages and the ability of international schools to entice international teachers to continue working overseas? Do you see that as a long-term problem or just a small glitch or something that's not actually an issue? I'm wondering what your experiences are. I think it's too early for us to tell here in China. We're just entering our hiring season now, but we're expecting that there will be renewed interest in countries which have dealt with the pandemic successfully from a public health point of view, and a definite interest in schools that appear to be stable, where enrollment is secure and where the package hasn't diminished. I mean, I know of schools where they've had to cut significantly, also cut the compensation in the package. If you're in a fortunate position of not being able to do that, I think you become even more attractive. 
Does anyone else have experience or know of what's going on with teacher packages? Is it impacting anyone here? As Malcolm says, it's an area for schools that are currently dealing with. It would be interesting because like most people, we've had teachers that have been stuck in country now for 12 months. So it'll be interesting to see what our retention is this year. Interestingly, the UAE government have put out a survey to all private schools asking, would we be interested in uh, having teachers based outside of the UAE teaching in our schools remotely? That's an interesting development here. That's interesting. Uh, that is something that's being talked about further and certainly wouldn't have been considered in the past prior to COVID. Chris, you were wanting to speak before. I think we're seeing something in England. There's a loophole which is being used at the moment. I think schools have to be very careful where their money is flowing because I think, as other people have said, especially Courtney beginning, we don't know where the future is going to be. So they're having to really tighten up on that. So things like the teachers' pensions, which is a gold-plated sort of pension scheme in England, a lot of schools are using the COVID experience to say, well, is there a way we can repackage that and save money from that? So I think quite a lot of schools are looking very carefully at what they can put in staffing and how much a percentage their staffing is. And I think that's also mirrored, really, with the flight of parents wanting to make sure they've got value for money. And there are cases where you just mentioned remote learning, where remote learning packages, even by the same firms, can be much cheaper than actually the face to face. And parents are also starting to make that choice. And we're also seeing, you know, within the UK, whether you can package remote learning in a more competitive manner in order to go to that market. So I think there's a lot of fluidity at the moment. Um, certainly the hybrid learning thing has not worked itself through in this part of the world. James? I think in terms of that question of where people are going and what we might be seeing in terms of movement, what we're picking up somewhat is this whole issue around trust. And do people trust the country in which a school is located, where they currently are, where they might go, and also the institutions? And I, I think we're seeing a bit of a flight towards more conservatism. And some people are thinking about taking a year off or going back home because they don't feel like they can trust the situation they're in. Or they're maybe thinking, I'm going to stay a bit longer because I'm happy where I'm at. And this is a nice, stable place at this point. But I really think that being a teacher overseas, so much of it is on a relational level. And if you have that trust in the institution in the country you're in, you're probably not going to move. And if you don't, you're probably going to move a bit quicker than you would have otherwise. It's an interesting combination, that, isn't it? It's interesting you talk about trust and flight and where people move. We've talked a little about teachers. How do you see this impacting the families and parents? For instance, schools in China, perhaps, where parents would have sent their children off to your schools in England, for instance, Chris, for education, international education, are they now looking to keep their children more in country? Is it impacting families like that? In China, most definitely. More Chinese parents of a certain stratum who would have sent their kids overseas to boarding schools are not doing that now. We can see that trend already. Some children who were at schools, boarding schools in countries like the UK and the US to take two very popular ones, came back during the spring or summer and are now staying in China and don't want to return. We're getting some very strong applicants that way. And another interesting trend is that people in Hong Kong, because of what's happening there, are thinking more and more of mainland Chinese boarding schools rather than going abroad to boarding school. What about other schools? Courtney? We've had some interesting cases, actually, of families who came from my previous school in China to us here in the Netherlands when the pandemic started. 
because they saw this as safer. And then some of them have now returned to China because they see China as safer. So I think there's a lot of that flip-flopping uh, mobility that's happening. I also think that this is going to be impacted when we see, again, what happens with a lot of these bigger companies that we typically deal with. Many, many families are being sent places that they wouldn't necessarily have chosen or didn't expect to happen to them. And so that will have a, a big impact, I think, on schools in general. We will probably see a lot more trading of students, if you know what I mean. They'll still want to be in international schools as long as we keep on top of the product that we deliver, if you will. The mobility is, I think, getting set to be quite large. So am I hearing correctly that you're seeing an increased mobility? Chris? Well, on a very small issue there, what's interesting in England is students, especially from China and Hong Kong, who actually would normally go home for the Christmas holidays, that industry of actually trying to keep them in country and not go home in guardianship, that's growing. On the other hand, certainly within our group of schools, we're working with London University, one of the major universities here, of how to provide virtual learning to hundreds of children elsewhere in the world from the basis of using our brand here, but actually physically not bringing people here. So that hybrid model of pre-university entrance, connecting London, uh, connecting a whole university system with people outside the country and physically not asking them to come to the country. That's certainly we're exploring seriously at the moment, just yeah. to change the market, just to be able to get the market. Is that in, in essence to try and get the market so that when the world goes to, well, it's new normal that then you go back to face to face with new students? No, it's a complete change. I think we were very surprised, to be honest, how stable people were in actually traveling into back into the UK in September. We were surprised by that. We did not anticipate that. And I think therefore our plans to provide virtual education to students, we wouldn't think we could get back into our country. And the reason we're keeping with that is because we think that volatility is still going to be with us for years to come. So it is a new market we are looking for, and we're not thinking of either transplanting our schools over in other countries as much, it used to be the trend five years ago, nor are we thinking of trying to get students into our country as much. It's too volatile to make a business case of. That volatility of the market and where the students are. What about others? Are you thinking of or considering that idea of either teachers or students being remote on a more permanent basis? Yeah, I think one of the things that this has really highlighted for us, not only reaffirmed a lot of our direction that we're heading with our vision for the school with putting students in charge of their own learning, but it's also highlighted that in times of volatility, when there's a lot of movement, like Chris said, it could be a completely new market for us to say, you started with us, something happened that forced you to leave us, but you really still want to be part of ASH. And so can we have an offering that's available for them wherever they go? even if they go into a new market that there are schools available, but they still feel comfortable learning remotely with us or staying at home to learn. This is going to open doors for a lot of things that places like Global Online Academy have already been there. But will we be able to, for example, create programs that really put forth our brand? That will be very interesting, I think, for all of us. This seems to be something that has not even been dreamt of before. Is that right? So COVID has really opened up a totally new perspective on possible school development that wasn't there before. James. Yeah, I think just to Courtney's point, one thing we have is a continuous learning program. And what it means is that when kids are out because they have to quarantine because someone's being tested or maybe people are having struggles with visas, 
we're doing this right now with dozens of kids on a daily basis and it's just become the norm. And to, to Courtney's point, well, why would we not continue to do something like this if kids leave the school in April and they don't start their new school until September? We could essentially take the systems that we've developed kind of organically and out of need and just start looking at education beyond our campus in a different way. And it's not a big task to do it because we're already doing it. <laughs> this isn't a hypothetical. It's just continuing to do what we're, we're doing right now and then making it better, so. I think that's a very interesting point and all kinds of new doors have been opened. As things calm down and change back to what we remember, at least to some extent, it's gonna be fascinating to see which of those open doors are gonna be closed and which will remain open. You know, we've been forced, uh, all of us, to develop new systems of distancing and blended learning. And I think we could keep those in really interesting ways, but I suspect that many schools won't. Interesting. Yeah, what would make some schools move forward and take these on? Is that an openness to innovation and moving forward, a capacity? Is that a capacity thing? Or, or do you think that there are many school leaders perhaps that are wanting to go back to what they were comfortable with before and imagine this had never happened or at least ignore it as much as possible? I think we're going to see some of the latter, but I think those who've got real imagination and are prepared to persevere with that are going to differentiate themselves in much greater and more obvious ways. That's certainly the differentiation through brand and understanding that is certainly something that's coming through in a lot of the conversations. David, can I ask you a question? In the previous podcast, you were talking about how the hybrid is being worked in schools in UA at the moment where you can get a certain number of students in one class with a teacher, another certain number of students in another class across the hallway with a substitute teacher, perhaps in a screen, and then other students at home. Do you feel with the capacity and the understanding and experience in order to do what we're talking about here and innovating and keeping that in place? Do you see that as a potential across the GEM schools? Absolutely. Yeah, darling. We've actually had parents that have gone back to their home country, moved back to their home country that have asked if they can continue to be enrolled with us because of that program. But one of the challenges across the Middle East is private education is so regulated that we do not have the government's permission to actually enrol students from outside our borders at the moment. So we're working with the government on that. And I think governments are quite agile, but that's holding schools back from doing that. We're getting a variety of opportunities coming out of COVID that hadn't been dreamt of before. So many places and times people are saying that technology has been pushed forward five to 10 years through COVID, the experience that teachers mm -hmm. and schools have had. We have one teacher who is stuck outside the country and for various reasons, she's not going to come back at all this year, even when she can, because it makes better sense for her to carry on teaching online for the rest of this academic year until the end of her contract. Now, that would have been inconceivable to me, at least, and to our school uh, eight months ago before all this happened. Lives are changing in all sorts of ways and possibilities are opening up, I guess. Deciding what's most feasible within each school is going to be a reflection of the context of that school. Do you think this is impacting university preparation, like the IB preparation for universities and, and the diploma program? And is it going to impact where students are prepared for and where they head to university at all? James? Yeah, I think there's two answers to that. And I mean, part of the answer has come through the IB where they've made some adjustments to the different requirements this year for paper one, paper two, and, and, and all the rest on the exams. But 
that will mean we're not covering quite as much material or there's not as much expectation. At least that's the key message to there. But in a long-term way, I can't help but feel quite positive that the students that have gone through this sort of adjustment and who have had to become better independent learners and had a little bit more control over their outcomes and not had the teachers guiding them as quite directly. I can't help but think that in five, 10 years time, they would look back and say, you know, this wasn't a bad experience overall, as hard as it was. And that as learners, they may be in better places as a result of some of this and the resilience they've developed. And I, again, I don't want to be Pollyanna about it because none of us would have wanted the situation to arise. But I also can't help but think that maybe it's not altogether a bad thing for everybody in the sense of us educators have had to push some of our thinking. The students have had to push themselves in different ways. And then in the long term, we may all be stronger as a result. Thank you. Yes, David. I mentioned earlier that there had been a 10 to 12% drop in enrolments across the UAE, but we haven't seen that same level at the top end, particularly in our IB schools. We've seen parents stay because the alternative of going home to perhaps a venue where they don't have access to an IB school has kept them here, which has been great. So our numbers at the IB level have remained very strong. Right, so again, the branding of the schools and the understanding and acknowledgement of the quality of the education you get through the IB keeps parents with the IB and their diploma. Again, yeah, confirming the, the importance of brand in the chaos that we're surviving. Can I finish this off with a conversation, an open idea as to really picking up on James' point? It's been a difficult and an extraordinarily challenging time, but there are some good potential things coming out of it apart from the wonderful innovation of being able to keep students who have been with you through perhaps continuing remote learning, what are the other things that you see coming out of this process that are worthwhile hanging on to as far as the school's concerned? Courtney. Yeah, we've seen actually, again, to James' point, I think, so many students who struggle on campus doing phenomenally well at home last spring when we had everything virtual. And then, of course, the inverse, some students who do phenomenally well on campus and struggling at home. I think it's broken open some of those ideas that there's one way to learn or that seat time equals learning. And so that's, I think, a fantastic, it's not been innovation. Many of us have been seeing that for many years, but it's a realization among especially families who are thinking, oh, hang on, there's not just one path. I think we can really leverage that very well for learning, not just our brands or for university preparation, but for learning for people around the world. That's, I think, going to be a long-term great effect. Thank you. I love that we call it a realization. I think that's a fabulous way of looking at it. Chris? Yeah, just jumping on what Courtney said, I mean, I think from the point of view of professional learning too, I mean, virtually every teacher has been put into a new scenario. And some people you probably wouldn't have recognized as being leaders before have really grasp the nettle that's really come forward and think this is exciting but I think on generally you know one of the biggest challenges when you go around IB schools is that C1 of the standards collaboration and collaborative planning the amount of even if it's just using Google Docs across the world the amount of collaboration which has gone on between schools across regions I hope that just continues the IB is a global organization I think this is, has the possibility of making that a realism realization for professional learning if we can keep that collaborative global collaboration going. Global collaboration between heads and teachers as well yeah. has been enormous. I would agree with that. And I'd also take it to the student collaboration too. We've always had GEM student leadership groups in the UAE, but that leadership group now 
operates across all gem schools around the globe. And that's a first for us. And it's taken this to get that off the ground. Connecting people in ways that we hadn't been connected before. I think we're recognising just how much more connected we actually are as humans. The independent learning that some have spoken about and the collaboration, both of those I've noticed and seen in abundance in the last eight months. And sometimes those two things are at odds with each other and in tension with each other. And in the last eight months in my school and the students that I've been observing, they haven't been. So we've had greater independence, greater solo achievement, if you like, but also greater collaboration. And I think that's a tremendously healthy mix. Thank you. One final question for you is we've talked about how schools have been forced to change in all of these circumstances, both forced to and deal with challenges, but also taken the bit and been innovative and discovered new ways of moving forward. Are we not pushing the universities to do some significant change as well and to get them to reconsider a number of things? You think that it's important that the universities do as well? Two of my three daughters are in university now, which is an interesting time to be in university, I would think. And I'm seeing that their models for not just revenue, but also for learning really depend heavily on people being on campus. Yes, they're going to have to change a lot, I think, if this continues, but also if they want to explore innovative instructional models, then they've got to change quite a lot. Again, like we've said in international schools, a lot of those that have the big brands that they've built up over hundreds of years sometimes, we will not feel this in the same way, although they will also have some of those people within their ranks who are the most innovative thinkers. How do we help that grow and how do we push it with the students that we're sending in their direction? Because I think a lot of our students will go into universities and say, well, hang on, why am I having to sit here in a room of 120 and listen <laughs> to this lecture when I could do it easily from my dorm room or my apartment? A lot of things are going to have to change. I'll be interested to see how it all goes. James. Many of us went through the summer period when the algorithm and the infamous determination of grades and predicted happened. And of course, it wasn't just with the IB, but A-levels was affected as well. And potentially one good thing that comes out of this, though, is this heavy reliance on things being driven by a final number, and that students largely when they graduate from a high school program come out as a number, and that determines whether they are admitted to a program or not. And that when we have something that interrupts some of the trust in those numbers, it means that universities, if they're going to bring in the right people, have to look at other criteria. And that, from an educational perspective from all of us, is a really, really good thing. And as much as we wouldn't want our authority of the IB diploma and the reliability of those figures to be undermined, maybe in the grand scheme of things, it's not a bad thing. Because that does mean that the system can't completely be trusted. And that when algorithms are making decisions on whether kids get into universities, surely that's not a healthy thing. And so what else are we going to look at? Well, why don't we look at the whole child? And why don't we get some systems in place around that? So I'd love to think that would be driving part of the change out of this, out of necessity. I don't want to add or question anything after that. I think that's a great way to finish this podcast, James. Thank you so much for all of you and your contributions of the discussions about what's happening in schools, some of the major themes that are coming through, and certainly the amazing innovation that's already been thought about and being put in place. It will be a wonderful and interesting experience to see where education goes in the next few years, partly because of COVID, but hugely because of the innovation of educators. And hopefully we can keep the best out of what we're learning over this time. Gentlemen, thank you so much for your time, contributions. It was great hearing from you. Look forward to hopefully some more podcasts in the future. Thank you for listening. 
Subscribe to our podcast so you'll never miss an episode. Be sure to check out more episodes of IB Voices on Spotify and Apple Podcast. Join us next time for more insights from our IB community.